Class 7, Session 3, Wisdom Literature, Job, Song of Solomon. A. Wisdom Literature in the Ancient World. Wisdom literature was common in the ancient world. There is a Mesopotamian wisdom poem from the king of Assyria, or Asurbanipal that has been found. There are Egyptian writings, such as the instruction of Amenemope, found in the latter part of the 19th century and translated in 1923. In fact, Egyptian wisdom literature dates from the Old Kingdom, in the archaeological time frame, about 2715 BC, and dominated for a while. Jewish wisdom literature has some parallels to other ancient cultures. This makes some uncomfortable. But it shows the style of writing was common in the day it was written, which helps us see the reliability and historical context of the scripture. Also, knowing that Moses was the first to write a psalm, Psalm 90, and he was educated in all the customs and literature in Egypt, gives a proper historical and contextual setting for its writing. Acts 7:22. Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was proficient in speaking and action. B. Wisdom Literature in the Bible. 1 Kings 4:29-34. Now God gave Solomon wisdom and very great discernment and breadth of mind, like the sand that is on the seashore. Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the sons of the east and all the wisdom of Egypt, emphasis mine. For he was wiser than all men, than Ethan the Ezrahite, Haman, Calchel, and Darda, the sons of Mahal, and his fame was known in all the surrounding nations. He also spoke three thousand proverbs, and his songs were one thousand five. He spoke of trees, from the cedar that is in Lebanon even to the hyssop that grows on the wall, he spoke also of animals and birds and creeping things and fish. Men came from all peoples to hear the wisdom of Solomon, from all the kings of the earth who had heard of his wisdom. Wisdom literature gives principles to navigate this life, and helps us learn how to take responsibility for one's own life and decisions. Wisdom refers to skill at life. Within Jewish thought, wisdom is related to knowledge and understanding, which are both connected to skill at life. No matter how old or young you are, where you live, single or married, have kids or not, rich, poor, or anything else, we need skill for living or making godly choices in one's life. While this style of writing was common in the ancient world, biblical wisdom literature is distinct because it is based in God's character, wisdom, and written within the context of the Mosaic Law. While there are elements of the Mosaic Law in wisdom literature, it is about basic and lasting principles for life, handed down from generation to generation for practical living, work, sexuality, warnings, suffering, making decisions, discerning, money, relationships and more these are principles and not promises. That's very important to remember. If you make a principle into a promise, then you are not only taking scripture out of context but giving people expectations that will not be fulfilled sooner or later, which can lead someone away from God, rather than to Him. Scripture is clear the true wisdom was a gift from God. The focus is on Him and brings glory, honor and praise to the God of Israel, YHWH. In ancient Israel, this was a contrast of pagan wisdom, just mentioned, to God's wisdom that exceeded any human wisdom. So, wisdom was not just about how you can have skill in life, but show that the world and all it offers, always falls short of what God offers. Application, the same goes today. There is the wisdom of the world, controlled by Satan, and the wisdom of God, James 3:15. Worldly wisdom and God's wisdom cannot go together. The world promises a lot but delivers nothing. We have a choice, whether young and in school, older and working, or retired. Where will we get our wisdom, from the world, or from the Word? Now more than ever, we need it from His Word. Wisdom literature is contained in the poetic books and was often, though not always, communicated through poetic form. But Hebrew poetry is very different than English poetry. For us, rhyme is a big part of poems, but not so in Hebrew poetry, 
which used repetition in various forms. The hallmark of rhetoric in ancient Near Eastern literature is repetition. In poetry this takes the form of what scholars call parallelism. Frequently the first line of a verse is echoed in some way by the second line. The second line might repeat the substance of the first line with slightly different emphasis, or perhaps the second line amplifies the first in some fashion, such as drawing a logical conclusion, illustrating its content, or intensifying the thought. At times the point is reinforced by a contrast in the second line. Occasionally, more than two lines are parallel. Each of these features, frequently observed in biblical psalms, is represented in songs from Egypt, Mesopotamia, and Ugarit, samples of which are interspersed throughout the commentary, emphasis mine. 1. Psalm 19 1. The heavens declare the glory of God. And the sky above proclaims His handiwork. Hashemayim Mesoparim Kbat El. Amase Yada Megid Harakia. In the opening of Psalm 19, the heavens in the first part finds an echo in the sky above in the second part, likewise, declare parallels proclaims, and the glory of God partners His handiwork. With nearly one-to-one correspondence, it is obvious why such poetic parallelism has often been called synonymous, one of three such categories, the others being antithetical, where the second part provides the opposite to the first part, for example, a wise son makes a glad father, but a foolish son is a sorrow to his mother, Proverbs 10:1, and synthetic, where the two parts of the line do not display either of these kinds of semantic relationship. Assigning a line of poetry to one of these simple categories represents only a first small step in discerning the poet's art. This parallel structure offers the poet a surprisingly rich framework for artistic development. The poet is not simply saying the same thing twice in slightly different terms. The parallel line structure provided Hebrew poets with a means of exploiting similarity and difference on the levels of sound, syntax, and semantics to achieve an artistically compelling expression of their vision. Unfortunately, of these three elements, the first two, sound and syntax, usually do not survive translation. 2. Wisdom literature explores a variety of aspects of life in the here and now. It expresses the emotions in a very deep way. Wisdom literature focuses on what we do and say as humans, knowing God is involved in everyday situations of life. On one side, wisdom literature looks at structure, principles and, under the law, the blessing or cursing of God in life. The righteous are blessed and the wicked are cursed. On the other side, there are mysteries and things that don't make sense in life. Sometimes the wicked are blessed in life, while the righteous suffer. Wisdom includes one's attitude, way of living, decisions made in this life and involves the interaction of the Lord in life situations, though not always understood. Wisdom literature communicates these. The conclusion under the law, is we are to fear God and keep His commandments or obey Him. See Job. According to Jewish tradition, the book of Job was written by Moses, though the events took place around 2100 BC, which was the time of Abraham. In this book, Job is declared to be a righteous man and Ezekiel 14 14, 20 portrays him as an ancient hero. Central to the book of Job is the question of human suffering and especially why people who are seemingly innocent suffer, which in turn raises the question about the righteousness of a loving God. This book deals with the question of retribution, the popular theology according to which the righteous prosper but the wicked suffer, as well as the justice of the deity, the so-called question of theodicy. Job's suffering, along with his patience, see, for example, Jas. 5.11, has become proverbial in everyday speech. The problems addressed by this book are truly part of universal human experience and therefore of world literature. 3. A theodicy, in its simple form, attempts to put together human suffering within a theological perspective, and from a Jewish wisdom literature perspective, attempts to answer the question, why do the righteous suffer? 
One thing we must remember is the problem of evil for us, is not a problem for God. Though we do not understand, the theodicy tries to answer this question and others. For Job, he was never told why. He was never told why he suffered, why he lost his possessions or children, or why he kept his wife. He was never told he was targeted and accused by Satan, or that God allowed the suffering to take place. However, we see the results in the end. God permitted it for various reasons, one of which was to purge Job of unrighteousness and pride in him, and a false view of God he held. Another aspect of the book is to show the spiritual battle going on in our world. God intervened and told Job that even if he tried to explain the reasons behind problem of pain and suffering so to speak, Job would not understand. What was Job's response? Job 42 1-6, Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things, and that no plan is impossible for you. Who is this who conceals advice without knowledge? Therefore I have declared that which I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I do not know. Please listen, and I will speak, I will ask you, and you instruct me. I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you, therefore I retract, and I repent, sitting on dust and ashes. When we don't understand. We trust God, because of who He is. Application, this same truth applies to us today. This is not easy, particularly when we are in the middle of difficulty and pain. It is a test of faith, just like it was for Job. Will we pass the tests? There's more about Job in the interpretation of wisdom literature below. D. Psalms. Psalms is a little bit different. It is not specifically wisdom literature per se, though it is connected to wisdom literature. It contains wisdom and is the most poetic book in the Bible, and therefore part of the wisdom literature. In the ancient Near East, many cultures like the Akkadians, Egyptians and Babylonians wrote praises and prayers to their deities. Only the Psalms were inspired by God. The book of Psalms was the prayer and praise book for the Israelites. The English word comes from the Greek Samos, taken from the Septuagint, or Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. Psalms was written over 1,000 years, from about 1450 to 400 BC starting with Moses, who wrote Psalm 90. Other writers include Asaph, Solomon, the sons of Korah and King David, who wrote about half of them. Some are anonymous. The book was finalized by Ezra, in the early 400s BC. Psalms is set up in five books, like an anthology. Book 1, Psalm 1-41, Book 2, Psalm 42-72, Book 3, Psalm 73-89, Book 4-90-106 and Book 5, Psalm 107-150. This mimics the five books of Moses, and each one concludes with a praise to God, or doxology. Books 1 and 2 are mainly by David. Book 3 is mostly from Asaph and the sons of Korah. Books 4 and 5 have many anonymous psalms. Throughout the psalms, the focus is YHWH, the God of Israel. There are various kinds of psalms. There are the royal psalms, which focus on God as King, point to Jesus as the coming King and celebrate the King of Israel, Psalm 2. These were read in Israel when a new king was put into place. The psalms of Zion are about Jerusalem and the temple where God was worshipped, Psalm 122. There are the penitential psalms, or psalms of repentance. These are corporate and individual, Psalm 51. There are wisdom psalms. These contrast the righteous and wicked, and are common among the biblical wisdom literature, Psalm 49. Some subcategories of wisdom psalms are Torah, creation, and history psalms. The Torah psalms express the beauty and truth of God's law, Psalm 119. Creation psalms like Psalm 19, extol God as the creator of the universe. History psalms remind the readers/listeners of Israel's history, God's faithfulness and call the people to recommit to the Lord, 
Psalm 78. There are imprecatory psalms. These call for God to judge the enemies of Israel, Psalm 137. These seem to contradict the idea we should love our enemies, but when you understand that the judgment prayed for was not personal, but because the enemies were God's enemies. These psalms called for God to bring justice in situations where there was injustice. There are praise or celebration psalms, Psalm 117. These praise God for His character, His deliverance and work among His people. Some psalms were sung or read by the congregation, with or without instruments, during Jewish festivals like Passover. Some were responsive psalms. Another group is Messianic Psalms. These were important when they were written and had their initial context but pointed to the Messiah in a specific way, Psalm 110. The Psalms could also be a mixture of types, and they were sung. I want everyone to watch this video. Video 4, https colon slash slash bibleproject.com slash explore slash video slash Psalm 8 slash dash Psalm 8, Bible Project. There is one more aspect of the Psalms, and all wisdom literature that is important in Psalm 1 as an example. This first Psalm sets up the entire book of Psalms. We see a contrast between the righteous and the wicked. It defined a righteous individual under the law, as one who believed in God and followed His law. This contrast between the righteous and wicked is found throughout all of wisdom literature in Israel. This is foundational in Jewish wisdom and poetic literature, and crucial to understand. E. Proverbs. Put simply, the book of Proverbs is a collection of writings from Solomon and others, that are truisms, or principles for life. Again, these are not promises, but basic principles for life. Within this book, there is a lot of practical wisdom that a father, Solomon, gave to his son. This went beyond just fatherly advice but was also kingly advice given to the nation of Israel, to live under the law and please God. If they were going to follow God's wisdom, then they would have been set apart as a blessed nation and protected from the evil things they constantly toyed with. There is more about this book in the interpretation of wisdom literature below. F. Ecclesiastes. Jewish tradition states King Solomon wrote this at the end of his life, which is why I believe Solomon did come back to the Lord in some fashion before his death, though it was too late for the kingdom. He was looking back on his life and the lessons he learned and was now prepared to pass them along, in a poetic, honest, upfront, and sometimes blunt way. There are two ways to look at this book. One way is to look at it as cynical wisdom, or a pessimistic way to look at life if God is not real. The other way is a positive way about how to look at life with death as a reality in the end. Or it's a mixture. I lean to the first, because of the phrase under the sun, but I think there is validity to the second. This is a book that should be studied more, particularly by those who are young. The basic premise is what life would be like if God didn't exist. What is the result? Vanity. All is vanity. Another way to translate this is emptiness. Application. One reason I lean towards this view of interpretation, is because of what we see in the world. Throughout the world and history. People, families and nations have attempted to find or give meaning to life in a variety of ways and means, only to fail in the end. One example is the belief in evolution. How can there be meaning if we arrived on earth by a senseless, pointless, and barbaric process of survival of the fittest? When God is rejected, everything else is embraced. Is it any surprise that suicides rates continue to rise around the world? Is it any wonder why youth struggle so much with identity apart from a biblical worldview? Is it any wonder why so many people are pushing for animal rights, and I love animals, more than human rights? All these things and more are evidence that when a person or nation tries to live life without God, the result is vanity or emptiness, which ends in death. G. Song of Solomon Songs. This too, technically, is not the standard wisdom literature, 
but is a love poem. Jewish tradition states that King Solomon wrote this early on in his life before his many wives and concubines took his heart away from the Lord. You may have heard that within the Jewish community, they did not let children read this poem until the boy, emphasized in the community, was 13 years old. The Song of Songs is a series of short songs sung by a male singer, a female singer, and a female chorus. Together, the songs more or less episodically describe the love of a man and a woman. Although made up of a series of individual songs that are sung by various combinations of the three performers, such as a solo by the woman, a duet by the man and woman, a chorus song, and so forth, the songs together are a unified opus that focuses on a major event of life, love and marriage. A close analogy for the poetic genre of the Song of Songs is in the Nixabek songs from the papyrus Chester Beatty I Love Songs. The subject of the Nixabek songs is quite different from that of Song of Songs, although both deal with the sexual relationship. The Nixabek songs tells of a young man who became ensnared in the pleasures of a prostitute. Like Song of Songs, it has three singing parts, a man, a woman, and a female chorus. The Nixabek chorus appears to represent the girls of a brothel, who sing of how delightful will be the man's night with the prostitute. Song of Songs in similar fashion uses the various singing parts to give us a picture of the lives of a man and woman. It deals with mature love, not prostitution and infatuation, but it is similar to the Nixabek songs in structural conception. Individual songs work together to give the audience a coherent if highly poetic interpretation of the joy and significance of sexual love. Like the Nixabek songs, Song of Songs focuses on a single moment of life, but here it is the marriage and first union of a man and woman. 4. Often, there is the rush to either focus only on the physical context of this poem within marriage, or the spiritualization of God's love. The fact is, there is both. The initial context is about the desire a husband and wife have for each other within marriage. There is also a spiritual truth. We think that it is about Jesus and the church, but that was not the context in ancient Israel of course, because the church didn't exist. To the Jews, the spiritual truth was about God's love and pursuit of Israel as his bride and love. This is also pictured in the prophet Hosea. H. Interpreting Wisdom Literature Learning about the style of wisdom literature and its poetic form is the first step to understanding these important texts. Second, it is important to understand the role of creation in wisdom literature. One sees this in Psalms and Proverbs. We can learn from creation because God set it in order, with structure and purpose. Next, learn a basic overview of each book, as I have tried to summarize here, and where how to read the Bible book by book is helpful. Fourth, recognize there are different types of wisdom literature in the Bible, that I did not mention above. Knowing this will help you interpret and apply this style of writing. A proverb, not promises but general principles for life, or a truth about the observed world that works in most life situations, while not denying the exceptions. It is up to the individual to learn the proverb and discern in its biblical context, and which one fits with the situation one faces. Also, a proverb is designed to be short and memorable and a guideline or principles for behavior. These were the first memes in history. It doesn't tell you everything there is to know about a particular truth, but it points you to truth, and encourages you to continue thinking and trusting God. Proverbs personify wisdom or folly as a woman at times. This has caused confusion and gross errors in interpretation. Proverbs 1 33 8-1-9-6 personifies wisdom as a woman. Unfortunately, pastors, teachers and leaders have used Proverbs 8 1-9-6 to say as a reference to Jesus. It is not. Jehovah's Witnesses use this same passage, 9-22-23, to state Jesus was a created being. The book How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth states Proverbs need to be read as a collection, 
not taking one out and forgetting the others, and of course, compared with other scripture. There is a specific Jewish figure of speech used in proverbial literature that confuses people. Proverbs 6 16-19, There are six things which the Lord hates, yes, seven which are an abomination to Him, haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that run rapidly to evil, a false witness who utters lies, and one who spreads strife among brothers. Other passages use this formula, Job 33 14-15, Psalm 62 11-12, Proverbs 30 18-19, Amos 1 3-2-8 and more. It's known as numbered parallelism and often, the final point is most important. This is not meant to be technically or numerically correct, but a figure of speech to emphasize a point. In the above example, the last phrase summarizes all the things God hates, because someone who spreads strife is doing all the others. Here's a difficult one, Proverbs 26 4-5, Answer not a fool according to his folly lest you be like him yourself. Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. Wait a minute. Which is it? It depends on the situation. In some situations, you become a fool if you answer a fool the same way he or she talks. Other times, you need to expose folly, according to what he or she is saying, to humble that person or group. Sometimes talking to a fool will help, but most of the time it doesn't. Therefore, wisdom is needed. Other forms or type of wisdom literature are Instruction, commands for the reader to act a certain way, or reject a certain way of living, prominent in Proverbs 1-9. Proverbs 5 20-27 is a specific example. These sometimes use do, do not, or heed, or listen. When one reads a command in wisdom literature, take it seriously and listen to the call for action. Example story, these are often introduced by the phrases, I saw, considered, passed by, with the story after it. Proverbs 24 30-34 is one example. Ecclesiastes also uses these. Reflection, this is prominent in Ecclesiastes. This is personal insight from the writer or sage, based on observation. The main point is at the end, where a moral statement is often made, like historical narrative. Ecclesiastes 3 16-17 is one example. Disputation speeches, the book of Job, while it has various forms of literature in it primarily is a series of disputation speeches between Job, others, and God. This is designed to have the listener or reader come to the side of the one giving the disputation. This is like a debate, where one party tries to convince the other party of their side and win them to their view. These are often spoken from the point of view of the one suffering. Look for a main truth or truths that dominate the speech. One lesson from wisdom literature is, we live in a physical world. Some talk about how bad the world is. The things of the earth can be used improperly, but the physical is not worse than the spiritual. Wisdom helps us focus on God, make proper decisions, and have a general trajectory towards Him while we live and struggle in the world. Humility is the basis of and result of fearing God and getting wisdom. You will never be able to understand God's wisdom and truth, if your pride gets in the way. You will never be able to grasp God's wisdom until you let go of your own perceived wisdom. One other factor we learn about from wisdom literature, is that our decisions matter. While we should seek the Lord, what we decide can be helpful or hurtful to us and others. Your decisions matter in this life for the next. Don't forget that. The world will not like it when a person, group, church, ministry, political leader, and others stand for and base their decisions on God's wisdom. We see that often in our culture, when someone stands for truth and freedom and those who hate both, slander, malign and try to make that person, group, leader or church look bad. From where or from whom do you seek wisdom? We should be able to go to a Christian leader, pastor, 
professor or Bible study teacher and gain wisdom from them. God gave Christian leaders to teach and pass on what they have learned, 2 Timothy 2 2. So, go to your local Christian leaders for wisdom. They know you, love you and should be able to give you some direction and wisdom. There are Christian counselors. We must be discerning. There are wonderful Christian counselors and horrible ones. But a good Christian counselor can help people with their struggles, problems, setting boundaries, and more. Naturally, we go to God's Word for wisdom. Memorize some Proverbs or Psalms. Do a deep study on what wisdom literature says about money, investment, family, love, marriage, finding good friends, etc. and pass on those truths to others. Last, our wisdom is limited. We cannot know everything. Only God does. Dash. 1. Walton, J. H. 2009. Zondervan Illustrated Bible Backgrounds Commentary, Old Testament, The Minor Prophets, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Songs, Volume 5, pages 318-319. Grand Rapids, Michigan, Zondervan, Logos. 2. ESV Study Bible, 865. 3. J. H. Walton, 2009. Zondervan Illustrated Bible Backgrounds Commentary, Old Testament, The Minor Prophets, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Songs, Volume 5, p. 247. Grand Rapids, Michigan, Zondervan, Logos. 4. Walton, J. H. 2009. Zondervan Illustrated Bible Backgrounds Commentary, Old Testament, The Minor Prophets, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Songs, Volume 5, pages 520-521. Grand Rapids, Michigan, Zondervan, Logos.